0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Debbie Potts. Debbie joined the show to discuss some topics around low-carbohydrate endurance training and fueling. Debbie has been a podcast host for over 10 years and currently is the host of the Low Carb Athlete Podcast show and YouTube channel where she interviews experts and shares her experiments. She has been a top age group triathlete and runner as well as a 15 Ironman finisher, five time Ironman Hawaii World Championship qualifier and multiple time Boston Marathon qualifier. Debbie joined me for a conversation on some topics on low carbohydrate performance There is a lot of polarizing information out there about these topics. So we thought it would be fun to just weigh in on them in a sense that I think maybe helps take the spotlight off some of the polarizing aspects of them and more on where there's some possible application and what you should maybe look out for with them too. Because there is oftentimes trade-offs with everything. And at the end of the day, it comes down to determining for you individually, where the net benefit is going to be when you start organizing your nutrition and focusing on things like performance. So the topics we hit on today included fasted and fed exercise, are carbs evil, strategic carbohydrate usage, nutritional ketosis and fat oxidation rates, carnivore diet and performance optimization, and female and male variances within a low carb approach. So those are the topics we dove into let me know what you think. If there's other topics around this kind of, I guess, umbrella of low carbohydrate endurance that you want me to touch on in the future, bring a guest on, feel free to reach out. Before we get rolling, I do have a raffle announcement to make. So for those of you who've been listening to the last few episodes, you'll know that last month I started a raffle where if you share the episode that you're listening to, or just an episode that you like on social media, and tag me, I will grab that and save it and then at the end of each month I'll do a raffle for a free 30-minute consultation with me. So it's pretty simple. Social media platform of your choosing, share an episode that you like so your friends, family and followers can see it. Make sure you tag me because if you don't tag me, I might not know that you did it. And if you tag me, I will grab that and enter in the raffle and at the end of each month I will make a drawing and announce it on the next published episode. So this is one of those episodes where an announcement is being made. So this is actually the winner for July, the month of July. So if you shared an episode during that month, uh, it is coming from that one. And the winner for this round is John Kelly. Not to be confused with former guest John Kelly, uh, although I'm, I think he shared at least one of the episodes, the one he was on. Uh, but John Kelly, you shared on Instagram stories, I believe. I will reach out to you with some details so that you can sign up for your free 30-minute consultation. All right. So with that, we'll start the process for the next round. So if you want to try to get entered in that raffle for the next one that will be announced in early September, just like I said, share the episodes that you like on social media, tag me so I know it, and you'll be entered. Also, just a quick note about some prior episodes, I've been putting together kind of a bit of a catalog of some specific topics around endurance training. It actually started with just generally speaking, I was thinking about how many new people are entering the sport of running and endurance sport specifically over the last few years, based on just what I've seen coming through on my coaching requests and things like that. So I thought, there's probably some value for people who are new or people who've been doing it for a while but just haven't really done it for some for structure but are now starting to turn to that. To go over some simplification of the process in order to just give you some ideas of like maybe some good starting points or things to focus on before you get overly creative and complicated with your training and sort of lose the value you're looking for in the massive sea of options that are out there when it comes to endurance training protocols. So that one started out with, uh, endurance training simpl- simplified, which is episode 344. And I also added a bunch of extra episodes to it as well as included one that was already out, which was episode 337, the long run considering the variables. But I did one on short intervals, long intervals, proper aid station navigation, easy run, all with that kind of simplified nature to it, meaning that I'm trying to get it into a easy to understand You could go out after listening to that episode and execute a workout in that category or practice something in that category and feel like you know what you're doing versus like you're just throwing things up against the wall, so to speak. Uh, I do think I'm going to add one more to it, or I guess I could say I'm going to release an episode that's actually already recorded that could also fit within this topic category. And that one is going to be on mental training. In fact, it'll be the next episode that goes out. I've actually been meaning to do that one for a while because on one of the previous Q&A episodes I did, it was a question kind of tied to that. But since it was a multi-question Q&A episode, I sort of did like a little bit of a shorter response to it. So I thought it would probably benefit from a full episode after a few listeners reached out and said, hey, we'd love to hear you dive deeper into that. So I went into mental training on that one. And It is uh, pretty inclusive in the sense that I highlighted a lot of ways to work on the mental aspect of racing by using your training for building that mental confidence versus just the physical component, as well as how you can structure your race mental approach ahead of time using things from both workouts and just your day-to-day life. So That one's actually up on the the show patreon page at the moment it'll be getting released to the public shortly here on all the platforms but if you do want to check it out early and you want to support the show you can do that through the show's patreon page you can get access to that through the links in the show notes or by just heading to zachbitter.com forward slash hpo which is where all things human performance outliers podcast is located including the catalog of previous episodes links to the patreon page details for each one of the episodes and some other support options if you're looking to do that outside of just patreon itself um cool before we get rolling with the episode with debbie just a quick shout out to the episode sponsors element t electrolytes or element is my electrolyte of choice and one of the primary supporters of hpo this year you can let them know That you heard about them from here by going to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. By using that URL, you will get automatically invited for a free sample pack with your first purchase. That sample pack includes citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango, chili, raw, unflavored. I like the sample packs because if you're curious about the product as a whole, and ultimately want to sample all of it before you decide what flavors you really want to focus on. Or if you find that you like some way better than the others and want to just get those, you've got that option. So Elements products come with a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. If you want to find out more about how to go about using that dosage of electrolytes, you should check out my episode with Andy Blow, which was episode 358, where we dove into hydration, electrolyte usage, and how you can pinpoint yours. I know mine, I'm 614 milligrams per liter of uh, sweat loss. So I've got my element set up where I'll use one of those packets for about two liters of water. Also supporting the show this year is Delta G ketones. So ketone esters specifically have been getting a lot more attention lately as more research has come out. The reason why I chose to support uh, Delta G on this podcast is because it's the one I use. The reason it's the one I use is because they are the one that received the DARPA grant, in effort to design a formula for the special forces. And they've actually produced 50 50- plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. So there is a lot of different formulations of ketones out there and they are not all created equal. So if you are hoping to get some of the recovery and potential performance benefits from exogenous ketones, Delta G is the one that has the formula that actually follows the research or was used in the research in many cases. So I wanted to make sure that I was getting what I wanted out of them or what the research suggested when I started using them earlier this year. So Delta G was the one. They have uh, a pretty simple process for someone like myself. I'll, I'll tell you my protocol real quick here. It's just all I'll do is I'll take a bottle of Delta G performance before a bigger workout or key training session To prepare myself for what to expect on race day. And then on race day, I will do the same thing right before in both cases, it's about 20 minutes before, whether it's the workout or the race, the difference between the race and a workout is on the workouts. It's one and done during the race. I'll take another bottle every three hours. If it's something longer, like an ultra marathon. If you're curious about how this would maybe work within your lifestyle or training, they actually have a really cool program at Delta G where you can sign up for a consultation and they will talk to you about the research, their product specifically, and where it would maybe fit within your particular training. So if you want to check that out, you can head to deltagketones.com. And sign up for that consult and check out the research they have on their webpage. Links to that will be in the show notes as well as on the show sponsor page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Debbie, thanks for joining me for a conversation today.
1: Yeah, Zach, I'm so excited because I listen to your show all the time and as a fellow endurance athlete, but more of a extra athlete, Ironman athlete. I think there's so many big topics we can collaborate on diving into that I hear you talking about and I'm talking about my show and then learning more about the female athlete versus you're a male athlete. No doubt. <laughs> How we can go through all this.
0: Yeah, you know I think this will be a fun one. We probably get some similar questions and then there's always that added um, piece to the puzzle, like you just mentioned, where if I had to guess, I would imagine that a lot of people who reach out to you maybe skews a little more female than male. Maybe I'm wrong about that. For me, I know it's definitely skewed more male than female. So when I do get females coming in, asking questions around like what I'm doing nutritionally, there is that added component that I'm like, well, um, I have less data that I've collected on this. We can look at the research as best we can and try to determine something from there. But I think it is also fun to have that perspective of someone like yourself who's been doing this for a while. How how long have you been more or less Gosh, playing around with low carb
1: since 2005
0: oh wow okay <laughs> so yeah
1: just mm-hmm. as long as you probably i started oh, doing Lord. iron yeah. mans in 2001 and then i started getting into metabolic efficiency testing
0: mm-hmm. treadmill
1: testing and arresting testing uh through new leaf back then and then bob Sebohor i did a usa triathlon clinic with in 2008 9 I guess eight. And then I started putting it together because I had always had these questions as an Ironman athlete and do marathons and 50 K trail runs that. All right. How am I supposed to fuel? I'm supposed to burn this fat that's on my body. I'm not losing any weight and I'm trying to do what they tell me to do having 300 calories an hour on a bike and an Ironman, but I'm throwing up the whole time. <laughs> so something's not working. So I got into it back then trying to get answers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Triathlon is an interesting, I think Tour de France is kind of similar where it seems like those two sports, they get maybe a little more curious, a little sooner. And then running, I think is maybe the endurance sport where they're just a little, I don't want to say stubborn, but it can be that way where it's like, all right, this is the way it's been. This is the way it has to be. And we're going to stick with this until it slapped us in the face.
1: <laughs> yeah, until you're broken.
0: So yeah, so it is kind of funny to see the variances in those communities in terms of like what willingness they're able, they're, they're willing to do to, to kind of deviate from the norm or the the position at the moment and, and, and experiment a little bit. And uh, I always find that like an interesting piece to the puzzle is looking at endurance sports both through the lens of, well, first of all, what are we talking about when we're talking about endurance? Cause like, as you just sort of suggested, like pretty wide range of things, especially when you get into ultra marathons where mm-hmm. someone will kind of loosely mention endurance and how you should feel for it. And my mind immediately goes to, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the 5k at an Olympic level? Or Are we talking about someone trying to finish their hundred mile and manage their rest of their life too? It's like, there's so many moving parts and so many different intensities and target intensities within that sport itself. It almost becomes a, like, we got to get in some nuance, at least before we even begin this conversation.
1: Yeah. I think what I keep focusing on my show with my clients is how to fuel train and perform your best as an aging athlete, as now I'm other side turned 50. Now I'm 51. And I feel that there's so much we need to look at too, as we age, because I'm focused now as, I'm on the other side (laughs) that I need to be more concerned about my future self. So doing the fueling and training and performance plans that work for me to be the best version of myself when I'm 80, 90 years old, as I watch my dad pass away last summer. And then my mom's, you know, 82 and all of her friends. And you just watch people age going, okay, am I doing all the things I should be doing right now to be living my best life, living longer, healthier, and happier And thriving instead of struggling every day. So that's kind of my mindset changes a little bit as a competitive endurance athlete too. All right, let's do that. But also look at what am I doing to improve my future self?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And maybe a topic that we could have included, or I guess it maybe fits in with one of them to some degree is like, you'd have a great perspective on this in the sense that what have you done differently now that maybe you would have done or what, what are you doing now that you would have done differently back in, like, say, 2005 when your younger self was first getting into this? Like, did you see any, like, kind of shifts over that that you thought would be necessary regardless of whether you were p- focusing purely on performance or just longevity and things like health and longevity?
1: Yeah, I think well, learning more now about long distance stuff, I'm listening Dr. Stacy Sims, I just finishing her menopause 2.0 program. And it's really interesting research on the female athlete as we age and have our hormones change and how we need to not do what we always talk about zone two and training zone two, and then doing appropriate HIIT training. But just the changes to do in my training program now for my clients is how we train now to improve our aging is going to be a little different than just what we used to do as ton kind of well zone two mafetone we used to call it now it's zone two <laughs> so yeah, it used I, to be a makes me laugh every once in a while yeah. i know right because i've been metabolic testing and i work with mark allen starting back in 2001 and mafetone and now it's suddenly zone two i know yeah. peter tia and huberman have uh, made that a thing now but i think it's building that endurance up and the younger self yes i did all the right things when i was doing iron mans and i did well skip out my personal story was adrenal fatigue in 2013 and not being able to train. So I'm helping people train appropriately. So you're not doing what we'll talk about is the fasted exercise. I was probably doing too low calorie, too strict keto, too much fasted exercise on top of a crazy lifestyle and running my own fitness studio and teaching classes, just being busy all the time and stressed out. And so I haven't been able to raise personally since my health issues almost, gosh, it's been 10 years now. So I've been really digging into why did that happen to me, not other people. And that's kind of what we're talking about now is, are you doing too much fasted exercise? Are you doing too low or zero carb that your performance is suffering? And are you doing too much training and not enough recovering? And so Uh, answer your question before is how I would train now future self is depends what age you are. Are you, you know, at my point in life where my hormones are all really low and I need to change how I train and adapt to that and make up for that loss of hormones by doing more short intensity interval training and doing less chronic long distance cardio and focus on more heavy lifting and some plyometrics in there. And so I can not do as much endurance training as I age. And so I think it's important to look at, what is your goal? Are you trying to work on performance right now? Are you looking at fat loss? Are you looking at longevity? Cause it might be slightly different for that individual, depending where they are in their life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that transitions us right into that first topic that we wanted yeah. to talk about, which is just fasted and fed exercise. Cause I do think this is a really interesting one. And I, I've been fairly skeptical about intermittent fasting when it comes, certainly to performance Pretty early on. And I think some of that is maybe just my own bias because I've always been a pretty high vault. I should say this when I got into kind of the more paying attention to the different variances of nutrition, I was full blown high volume training by then. So my calorie needs for the day were to the point where if I were to intermittent fast, it meant jamming quite a bit of calories into a pretty tight window. And that just didn't seem comfortable either. So I got to the point where like, just, it just, if I was just going to intuitively intermittent fast, Mm -hmm. it was a scenario where at the end of the day, I was like, all right, now I'm just like mainlining nut butter with olive oil added to it to get caught up to the, (laughs) to the energy requirement for the day to make the training plan sustainable. And it just seemed like, well, Maybe I could just phase this out if there's nothing uniquely beneficial for me at the performance side to the intermittent fasting stuff. Like, why am I doing it? And so I kind of maybe was a little bit overly skeptical, or I guess maybe the way to look at it is I was looking at through my lens a little more specifically than say like the full scope of things. And now I look at it as it's probably good to know the downsides of intermittent fasting that are potentially going to be there regardless of your me training for performance or someone who's like i'm doing some endurance stuff i'm training for a race but my primary goal is weight loss Mm -hmm. and i look at it there as a situation where intermittent fasting is a control that you can put in place that will likely minimize your intake to some degree just intuitively so if you're going to do nothing else other than close your eating window down More likely than not, you're probably going to eat less than when you were just kind of eating like freely. So if the person has body fat that they need or want to lose, and their focus is at least partly that arena, that is one lever that can be pulled there, uh, I think it gets interesting when you start looking at things like what else are you doing alongside that. So like if I'm working with a client, they say, hey, I find that intermittent fasting works really well with me. I work within like, say, a 16-8 window or eight-sixteen, where you have eight hours of day that you're eating 16. You're not. My first thought is, OK, let's make sure you're getting enough protein. And let's make sure that you're getting some resistance training in there. And if possible, let's spread out that protein at the beginning, middle and end of that eight hours as best as possible. So we're minimizing to the best we can some of the potential lean mass loss that a lot of the intermittent fasting research suggests will happen at maybe a little bit higher rate than you would if you were just calorie restricting with a more spaced out approach or doing a a calorie restriction approach where you did like refeeds and not just having a chronic calorie deficit. And I think once they kind of understand just like where the pros and cons are there, they start to recognize like, okay, is this something where intermittent fasting is just for me at the personal level, something that I prefer to do and helps me. And if I don't do that, I end up falling off of my target then let's just be as good as we can within that feeding window to make sure we're not losing lean mass and performances and also taking a hit as best we can versus someone who says, Oh, I just thought intermittent fasting was the only way to do this, but I'm really open to others. And then we find out like we could do it a different way that works just as easy for them. They just weren't exposed to it yet. So for me, a lot of this is always just kind of like, let's see where their knowledge base is. And then if there's some expansion that would be useful, let's expand it. So they're working with all the tools and then, from there, figuring out which tools are going to be most valuable for them at the personal level versus what we maybe see at the individual level.
1: Yeah. I think it, especially with your audience is doing the ultra endurance. So <laughs> you, and you're teaching people to be fat adapted. You're burning fat as your main fuel tank carbs, are your backup fuel tank when you're sprinting and at race pace. So do we need to eat to kick into fat burning? And, and I think that got to be the question is is why are you fasting? I don't like eating a meal, especially if you're going to go work out at 5.30 in the morning, 6 Mm a.m. I don't want to eat something, but I was, when did fasting? I think five years ago, 10 years, well, we got into intermittent fasting, got to be a book, Jason Fung, all these different people are getting these books out. And then Dr. Mindy Pels, and everyone's talking about fasting and Ben Azadi and all these people in the keto low carb space. And I think it, a lot of our athletes is why I wanted to bring this up are going, Hey, I'm going to try that too, but they're talking fasting for healing your body for people that have metabolic issues. It's going to the, our other question on their list is being zero carb to no carb 50 grams or under carbs. That is this all appropriate for the endurance athlete? So when we go into the fasting part is more, why are you doing the fasting Is it to help you burn more fat? Is it to help cell autophagy and healing and repairing your body? So it's, I think looking at why, but I think we got all caught up as athletes into, okay, I'm going to do 16, eight. And I did this too. I was super strict. Even if I was working out in the evening, oh, I can't eat after four o'clock, but I just lifted weights, but I'm going to bed at eight o'clock and I'm going to work out first thing in the morning. Well, then are we beginning the L E a low energy availability? I'm not eating uh, enough to be peak performance the next day. And I think we get so type a driven strict that we think, okay, more is better. I'm going to do these 16 hour fast. And then I'm going to start doing some 22, 24 OMAD fast. And then I'm supposed to be, you know, this great fat burning athlete. I'm doing all this endurance work. Well, I don't need to eat anything. <laughs> so I think hmm. it gets kind of this downhill spiral for a lot of athletes and then my female athletes I've been researching is, is like, okay, should we maybe add in a little something in my coffee before that workout? What is okay. And be aware of your body, how you feel and experiment that N equals one fueling strategy. Go, okay. My workout was actually better. Yes. I can go and not eat anything, but did my workout suck
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> or
1: did I feel amazing? And I felt great. So I, it is so individual, but I think it's what I've learned. And I found this book that I had in my bedside table. I was going over is this is all this fasting information. I wrote in last three years of everyone's fasting information. And for athletes, it came back to that 12 to 15 hours is 12 hours should be normal dinner to breakfast, breaking your fast in the morning. And then when should you add in some calories before workout, even if it's adding a little butter and cream into my coffee, that it's okay. But the last thing I'll say, I think we get so strict that I'm like, oh, I got to follow these rules and not listen to my own body, what it's asking for that I could use to benefit my performance because I'm, I need to stick with this fasting window Mm -hmm. and I only can have water and only can have black coffee. And I can't break that even if my workout sucks.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's actually an interesting point because I was thinking about this just from my own practice standpoint. And the thing I always come back to is like, I don't know why, I mean, I I understand why, but I would never want to necessarily say like, all right, intermittent fasting is what I do day in and day out, 365 days a year, 24 seven, because my days look so much different from one another. And then what I do the day before may impact whether that's a good idea or not. So like, for example, the other day, I took a rest day where I didn't do any workouts really, and uh, ate in a pretty large calorie surplus. And then that next morning, I woke up and I wasn't hungry at all. And I went out for my run and just had a really great workout, didn't eat until after that run for the first time that day. And that was totally fine because my body was probably thinking, yeah, there was a lot of energy on board. Liver and glycogen were probably fine. I'm going to get through any single training session without too many issues. Now, had that been a different scenario where I had done a fairly big caloric expenditure the day prior and maybe missed my energy intake by a little bit. And then I rolled into that workout the next morning in a state where my body was like looking for some calories, then I would have eaten something then. So those have been two examples of where potentially an intermittent fast or a longer window without eating in one scenario would have been totally fine from the grand scheme of things from energy balance. Like over the course of those two, three days, I, I was hitting all the stuff I needed to hit, but maybe it was just positioned a little differently from one to the next and I think people sometimes think of it as like an absolute versus a tool that can be used when it's when, when it can. And again, I think when you look at it as a tool, then it gives you kind of the freedom to be a little more flexible. So then like, you know, when I have an easy recovery day and I'm not having a very big metabolic demand for that day, I don't feel like I'm eating way less than I normally would because I can just kind of eat freely, have a calorie surplus. And then when I kind of get back to those bigger metabolically demanding days, afford myself a little bit of flexibility that I don't feel like I got to be eating all the time either. So (laughs) yeah,
1: well, exactly. Your point is you're saying it's going to be individualized and look at your weekly schedule. And I like to look at client schedule Sunday. Let's look at what your life looks like, what your workout schedule looks like. And when is it appropriate to do a little bit longer fast and then teach people how to be intuitive that, oh, I'm actually feeling hungry, knowing what that feels like <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to know if it's hunger or if it's psychological and that maybe I should have something. And that could just be a tablespoon of butter in your coffee or having something at night, bone broth or something that's easy to digest that won't mess up my sleep, but it, it is giving yourself permission to listen to your body and then use fasting as a tool when it's appropriate on your re- active recovery days, rest week. And then for women, I'm looking at their menstrual cycle, timing it with their cycle too, where that fits in. So it's kind of fun. You can map it all out for females premenopausal, but I think it is fasted exercise is good when it's lower heart rate. So that zone one, zone two. And then there's things of men versus women, women might do better activating their fat burning system if they have a little bit of calories in there. So I've been experimenting and not being so dogmatic, so strict, like, oh yeah, this is how it is. But that's women versus men, whole thing that women, men can do it faster, exercise better. Women might need a little bit of something if it's some aminos and creatine and having something as cream in your coffee and not be, I think it's just experimenting.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think like you added an extra point there where I find that once you sort of if you do just like a reasonable job of kind of like assessing what you're doing throughout the day from an intake and an exercise standpoint eventually you get to a point where you can sort of predict like oh a day like today I'm probably not going to require a whole lot of fuel before my training session in the morning or a day like a a different day altogether you kind of know like probably go to bed at night. He's like, yeah, I'm going to probably wake up and it's going to be in my best interest to get some food in before I head out this. So I stay on top of things and the training at the end of the week is high quality. Do you, with, with women, I think there's probably one more step there where it's, it's like, you also are considering, well, what part of the month is it and how is whether I do that or the other thing going to impact that with this, with the topic of fasting in general, is there a protocol that you find based on your your um, conversations with Stacy Sims about just like when you're at this part, you should probably just not consider intermittent fasting a good choice, or during this part, this may actually be beneficial for you? That varies with that sort of a setup.
1: Well, I've talked to Dr. Mindy Pels, who's all about fasting for women of the fasting cycle. Stacy Sims, I haven't interviewed because she's not all about low carb or. Um, eating high fat diet and protein she's all about, but she doesn't talk about fats. I realize which build your hormones, but, um, fasting should be normal is what I've heard Stacy say. 12 hours isn't really fasting. That should just be, you stop okay. eating and that should be normal doing the longer fast. She says in her books and the menu menopause program, I just finished that. You're not, it's not beneficial because we have more prone to this is stressful and it's added stress to your body. You might improve performance by having a little bit of calories, it doesn't have to be a lot. Then there's Dr. Mandy Pels who maps out the cycle for women, and you don't want to do fasting. And then the Endure IQ program, I think you did. Did you do their coaching program? The Endure IQ has a women athlete part that you don't, you only should fast, do fasted exercise. Middle of your cycle, it's not the whole time. So I think Mm -hmm. you can really map out what Dr. Dan Plew's program teaches us in their courses, and then Mindy Pells is talking for the metabolically unhealthy person, not the athlete. So I'm trying to take all this data and all this research. Okay, well, what about for the aging athlete and the aging female athlete that does endurance work? What's appropriate? So it'd be not fasting your late luteal phase, like day 20 on, not fasting around ovulation, but like. Before, after, and then matching that to your recovery days, and then still getting your protein because that's the whole thing going back to the fasting in general. That I've changed my mindset that if I'm doing OMAD, and I used to do that and work out like all day and be moving around, that I wasn't getting enough calories in. But then I focus on what Dr. Gabrielle Lyon talks about, and all of our carnivore friends is saying, Oh, you know, you need the ideal. Grams of protein in an ideal body weight. So if your goal weight is 130 pounds is your ideal weight. You want 130 grams of protein a day and then getting that almost equal in fat for some people. So how are you supposed to do that in one meal? You can't. So then that's why I started paying attention to, am I hitting those protein goals as the aging female athletes more important to me? because I'm trying to build muscle and, and get leaner and stronger and faster as age, not do the stereotypical aging gain fat. And so you can't really do all this prolonged, you know, eight hours. It's really hard to fit if you do a 16, eight to get your protein goals, as you said, too. because mm-hmm. that's a goal I think is for athletes. We need that protein.
0: Yeah. And the, with the protein conversation, I always find interesting. Cause I always, when I'm talking with uh, someone like Dr. Gabriel line, or one of my coaching clients, who's interested in like, how should I be going around this? Our first step is just what you said. Let's Let's target what would be kind of the top end of what you would likely need for to be optimal, which is that gram per pound of body weight. And then like, if you do fall a little short, you're probably going to be fine since that's kind of the high end of what we would, we would expect you to require, especially if there's some strength resistance work included in the program. And then from there, it's like, how can we optimize a little bit further? And there's like another, what would be a relatively small step on top of hitting that gram total. And that is spreading it out a little bit more than what you would likely see in like an OMAD type style of eating where now if you have say like that protein total that you're taking in for the day spread out between say three or four sessions or servings during the day with about a three to four hour block in between, it can be like protein muscle synthesis is going to be a little more elevated throughout the day with that sort of a structure versus having it all at once. Yeah. And then the, the, the big I think the big piece to that puzzle, though, too, is just the resistance training piece to the puzzle, where it seems like you can make a few more mistakes around protein if you have resistance training in the program, and that alone is going to send signals to your body to kind of preserve or build lean mass versus have it kind of go to the wayside in a calorie deficit or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it gets why we are coaches. It <laughs> gets so individualized in how to work it out for a client that here's your training schedule. Here are your goals. Here are your struggles in your area of opportunities. What is the best fueling and training program for you in this period of your life right now, this, this quarter, or, you know, look at your training schedule and races that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So it has to change, but that kind of brings us to our next question is what I hear all the time. And Listen to everyone seems to be more strict carnivore and that I don't need any carbs. So what's your take on, I know Dan Plews is talking about this on your podcast. You did with them earlier this year, but all carbs, are they evil Mm -hmm. and being strict zero carb carnivores, keto carnivores? When is it okay to add in strategic carbs in and around a workout if you're trying to improve performance? Because so many people out there that are not in the endurance space think, all my carnivore friends is just at conferences with them. Like, you don't need any carbs. It's not essential. So you can, you know, make gluca- glycogen from fat and protein, gluconeogenesis and make that. But if you are in a good training workout that you're trying to hit certain times, depending on the time of day, you're working out what you ate beforehand, when it might be beneficial. And in a race situation that you are wanting to go a little faster, you're burning you're training above your fat burning ranges that we identify in a test ideally, but when is it appropriate to have some strategic carbohydrates? As we talked to Layton Phillips of S fuels and you talked to Dan Plews and drag Q. So what are your thoughts of, for your, you're doing ultra endurance Mm -hmm. where are you at, Yeah, Sean Baker background too. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and I find that that was always the interesting thing with Sean is like, Sean and I are on opposite ends of the spectrum from a target (laughs) in terms of fitness. And we would jokingly say like, Sean's literally twice as big as me. And he is literally twice as big as me and (laughs) and his events and his sports are very high intensity. I think the conversation around things like gluconeogenesis or carbohydrate need versus optimization the details are so important here. So I think someone like Sean, he's doing such explosive type sessions that the amount of volume he's going to do on a day-to-day basis is going to be quite low compared to someone like myself. So his workouts in and of themselves are going to be more glycolytic, but they're going to be a lower amount of total energy burning during any training session that he would do versus what I would do, even with his 2X mass. So he's in a situation where I think like, just by getting what would be probably above and beyond the requirement for protein, he's going to get a lot more demand-driven gluconeogenesis and likely satisfy the needs for his next session from one day to the next versus someone who's doing like what I'm doing, where I might go up for a 90 minute session in the morning and have some threshold work in there, where even when my fat oxidation rates are at their highest, I'm going to be tapping into some liver muscle glycogen during a session like that. And then I may be going to the gym for some strength work and an easy run later that day where I've got a five to six hour window that I need to kind of make sure my body's back ready to go again versus you know, a 45 session, 45 minute session, 24 hours plus from now. So I think that's where it gets a little more like where, where we, the conversation goes from me to optimum. It's like, could I follow a zero carb carnivore diet strictly and go about my endurance training program? Yeah, I could, mm-hmm. but I would definitely struggle to mm-hmm. meet the performance metrics that I'm currently hitting. I would see a regression. And I think most people would minus the group of people who potentially clear up some other issue or issues that are powerful enough that they eclipse the performance dip they're going to get from essentially eliminating an entire tool from their toolbox, which would be the carbohydrate tool. So the way I like to describe this is, if we just look at carbs, fats and proteins, And we look at them as fuel sources, because if we're going to look at gluconeogenesis, we're including protein as a fuel source then as well, even though I see that as a pretty bad fuel source for reasons I'll explain, but we have carbohydrates, which require fewer steps for our body to take, break down and use. then we have fats, which are an energy source, a great energy source, but they're going to take, they're going to take more steps for your body actually to break it down and utilize it as a fuel source. So you want to be mindful of the intensity and the frequency of that intensity when you're deciding on whether fats or carbohydrates are going to be a tool that should be used. And then you have protein, which is primarily going to be for recovery, but like you said, in excess. And for someone like Sean, some of that's going to get broken down, converted and used to in store glycogen through gluconeogenesis. So that one's going to take even more steps though. And the body has to work hard to break down protein. When you just look at simply the amount of energy it requires your body to break down carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. We're looking at a pretty similar amount of just like a few percentage points of that food from carbs and fats to be broken down and used. So your body can pretty efficiently use that as a fuel source versus protein. Sometimes we're getting ranges up into the 20% where you're eating protein and it's gonna require about 20% of that, that protein number, calorie or energy intake for your body to actually break that down and use it for what it is because of it. It's just more difficult. So when people say to me like, oh yeah, why don't you rely on gluconeogenesis during one of your races? I'm like, why would I want to have it? Why would I want to make that many steps occur? And then like, for what reason should I believe that it would be even remotely quick enough?
1: Yeah. Fast enough. Yeah.
0: Because, you know, I'm talking about like, if you look at my best hundred mile performance, that's nine miles per hour. I would have been burning somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 90% fat, 10 to 20% carbohydrate. If I were to say, try to keep on top of that 10 to 20% glycogen burning side of that equation with something like gluconeogenesis, it just isn't going to happen in that 12 hour timeframe.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: the devil's in the details, as they say, <laughs> I think yeah. you have to be very mindful of your lifestyle. And to kind of go back by saying before, like I have a couple coaching clients who follow what I would consider a relatively strict carnivore diet. And it's, it's, it's because they have other issues. It's because mm-hmm. like they had some sort of digestive issue where when they start introducing uh, any meaningful amount of plant matter into their diet, they have all sorts of problems flare up and yeah. whether they can correct that or not, I mean, that's somewhat of a personal, like I don't want to say problem, but like a personal thing for that. They're going to have to try to solve versus trying carnivore, getting success from that. And then just never exploring what they could potentially bring back. Uh, Like, I mean, I had one, one client who was in a pretty rough shape and he found um, he was following a uh, a keto or paleolithic. What was it called? The carnivore, carnivore paleolithic way of eating or ketogenic paleolithic, which is essentially just a carnivore diet, Uh, a little more structure and strict versus, like what you maybe see on the interwebs with carnivore, which I think is, I don't even think they agree as to what a carnivore is half the time. So, but he was like night and day different because he had such terrible digestive issues. Mm-hmm. And he even had a, like a fecal transplant, I believe, and was like, didn't get relief from that. So it's like, it wasn't like he wasn't attempting to try alternatives. So for someone like that, I think it's like, yeah, if you are just going to have all sorts of digestive issues left and right and A carnivore diet is the thing you found to relieve that. You probably will see a performance boost from that sort of a lifestyle versus say someone like myself, where if I do a zero carb carnivore diet, I'm going to see a performance dip. And then when I add some carbohydrate back, I'm going to see that performance normalize. For me, I'm not getting the negative repercussions that that person's having by reintroducing the carbohydrate. So at that point, I'm thinking to myself, that's a tool I want to keep in the toolbox versus one I want to necessarily eliminate. So that's generally how I look at it. I try to think of all these things as tools and then it just becomes like, what is the right fuel that you're going to need to use at the right time in your workout, your training to kind of maximize that. So low intensity stuff, you know, I'm going to be using more fat-based products, leaning into those a little bit more. Uh, I'm going to be using, like, if I want to add a a fat based product to that training session, if it's longer and I'm worried about kind of like we were talking before inheriting too big of a calorie deficit, I might use a product like S fuels train, which is going to keep the carbohydrates out of it, but give me an energy source along with it versus say I do a threshold session, a short interval session, or I'm doing a long run and preparing for my race day fueling. Then I might use something like an S fuels race plus where. I'm going to get in some carbohydrates that is going to be something that I'll want to use on race day, or that will maybe be useful for the glycolytic activity that I'll be having during some of those shorter training, shorter, intense, higher intensity, shorter interval type training sessions.
1: Yeah, there's a lot on the race. Plus, do you do that in a training workout? That's intervals that you have. You tried it without fuel and with fuel to see if it makes a difference in your performance when you're doing a more of a anaerobic zone, four or five workout.
0: Yeah. So the way I look at it is I don't, it's not clear to me that like, if I wake up in the morning and I'm not hungry and I have say like a 75 to 90 minute training session that includes short intervals that I would need to fuel that workout in order to maximize it. uh, There could be some, it's probably worth trying for someone because there is going to be potentially a scenario where let's say you get to that last interval and just ingesting that carbohydrate may lower the perceived effort. So if you are noticing your intervals are properly formulated, but you're struggling to get the quality at the end to maybe explore that, that option for me personally, I don't typically see that. So it's more of a question for me as to what's next. Mm -hmm. So like, let's say it's a scenario where I'm doing that interval session and I got some strength work later that day. And the way I have my foods planned out for that day I'm just not going to be having a lot of carbohydrate in them. I'm going to probably take in some race plus during that session, just so I do have some of that carbohydrate taken care of for that later day training session versus a day where it's like, I'm just going to go do this workout. Maybe it's a hotter day and I just don't want to introduce a lot of calories during it because it's just one more component to worry about when you're, when you're training in the heat. And I know like after that particular workout, I'm going to be able to replace enough of the carbohydrate that I hit during that workout to be ready for that next session. And that's in that particular training session, I wouldn't necessarily feel like I needed to fuel it where, where I typically get a little more firm about like, okay, this training session is just do the fueling strategy is when I get to the end of a training plan and I'm building out my long run specific to race day because I'm just using that as a dress rehearsal to make sure I'm doing everything right from pacing gear check, fueling strategy for race day and just checking off, making sure everything is working the way I want it to. So I don't have any surprises on race day.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's good. I I did learn that years ago. I did coaching with Ben Greenfield for uh, Ben and we learned from Ben's research. Some of his seminars is done is when to add in cars would be Mm -hmm. when you are doing another workout within eight hours. And then Evening meal adds your carbs if more like the sweet potatoes, safe starches kind of thing in the evening meal if you're going to do a hard workout the next morning. But yeah, it's timing it because I always experiment. That I was a triathlete, even though I'm not racing, I still train. Example yesterday, a bike and then I ran half hours intervals in both, and then I did a swim workout at noon. That. I'm always like, yeah, I don't really need to eat. I'm not hungry. But if I want to improve that performance, so I don't feel lethargic swimming <laughs> that mm-hmm. you have to kind of experiment and go back to what your goal is and the timing of that carb if it's necessary. Mm-hmm. That's that they're not can... all evil.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. The... Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors include LMNT electrolytes and Delta G ketone esters. LMNT electrolytes can be found at drinkLMNT.com forward slash HPO and are offering a free sample pack with your first purchase. And Delta G ketones can be found at Delta Also, give them a follow at Delta G. Dot ketones on Instagram. That's actually a, an interesting, maybe kind of side topic that fits probably within one of the categories. When you're working with athletes that are following a little bit of a lower carb diet, is there a trend that you notice where that tends to be better than others for just the timing of the carbohydrate they are eating, because there's like, this topic gets kind of black and white a lot of times where you get into this like back and forth of no carb or all carb. So then it's just kind of the answer is clear. You either don't eat them or you eat all of them. But then there's like, I think the majority of low carbers in in the endurance world who aren't strict ketogenic, they're just low carb or their fat macro is their largest macro. So they do have some carbohydrates to play around with, do you see any like kind of clear leader in the clubhouse, so to speak, in terms of when they typically would like to have those?
1: I think it's if you are doing a harder workout is experimenting for that client. But for myself, it's been trying to hit post-workout, eat in something, protein, fat. And I keep, I it's hard because I keep hearing Stacey Sims speak and then other people, get a carnivore that like, they're so opposite. So I think that's mm-hmm. where you have to go. Okay, let me try this. So right now my phase I'm in right now is working on adding some fat and then eat some pro I'm not, cause I'm never really hungry. So that's a hard thing when you're, you know, more fat adapted, you're not hungry. And adding, say I had, when I eat this morning, I had two hard boiled eggs with salts on them. And I had, um, piece of cheese. And then if I'm swimming later, what I've been experimenting with, maybe I'll have an hour before swimming a half a a bar as fuels bar. I like that has some carbs in it, but I have to time it because when I'm swimming, I can't eat beforehand or else I'm regurgitating Yeah, <laughs> what I'm eating. So even if I run, I can't really eat before I work out. So especially swimming, I had. Too much bacon the other day, and my swim workout was kind of like, oh, this doesn't feel good. <laughs> so I think it's timing when no matter what you eat, that you have proper time to digest it. But then if you need quick and easy carbs, if you didn't eat enough, I've been trying S fuels or layered superfood bars uh, 10 grams if it's plant based. It doesn't have dairy in it, but it has some mushroom adaptogens in it. So I've been trying that, like half of it, and see how that feels. But it is, I think we go back to being that strict type a driven follow the rules but not listen to your own body that instead of being intuitive we listen to like oh i shouldn't eat anything i I don't want to break my fast i'm gonna go work out i need i'll burn more fat if i don't eat but then your workout is a struggle so it is again try it see if you feel better but not being afraid because we hear all these people oh no carbs are all evil don't eat anything you don't need it just have a piece of meat and some butter on it (laughs) but if I'm doing a swim session at masters, that's going to be more anaerobic yesterday. I was struggling. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's like, well, maybe I need to uh, give myself permission to have a little bit of something, but not crappy foods. You know, we're not saying have a donut, have a bagel, have some, you know, processed foods, but having, it's okay to have maybe, I don't know. I go to a bar when it's quick and easy, but evening meal, like sweet potatoes or something. I have eliminated a lot of the vegetables going back to the carnivore people and plant toxins and all of that part of it is healing your gut and digestive issues with, you know, the carnivore cure type of information. Judy Cho is shown in her recent summit, but yeah, I think everyone's so different. It's hard to say. It depends is the answer, but to answer your question is having a little bit of carbs before your anaerobic workout. See if that helps your performance.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like one thing to touch on with that too, is I find it interesting with like the plant toxin conversation, because this seems to me to be a lot of times like a threshold issue that maybe ranges a fair bit from one person to the next. And it's, it's just an interesting one because I find online, a lot of the topic is just around kind of like carbohydrate, where it's like an all or nothing conversation of, I need to either never touch a plant again because they're literally out there to kill me versus (laughs) like, I just maybe need to be careful about blending two pounds of spinach into a smoothie. (laughs) It's like, there's some middle ground there that I find that I think most people probably would discover as pretty like benign in terms of what the problems it would cause and potentially very helpful in other areas. So a lot of times I find it, I find like the application of a strict carnivore diet to be the most fruitful in the sense that it's, as far as I can tell, one of the more like clean slate elimination diets you can find out there. So if you are someone who's struggling with digestion and you say, do like a 30 day reset, uh, yeah, reset, and then take that clean slate as an opportunity to reintroduce some of the foods one at a time, you can get a pretty clear look at which ones are going to be maybe a little more problematic for you versus the Mm -hmm. other. And I find more often than not, when someone does that, they discover that they don't need to be strict, but they do just maybe need to be mindful about certain groups of foods or they need to be mindful about the quantity of which they have, or maybe it's just like when they have it too. Like maybe they discover, yeah, I can have a cup of steamed broccoli for dinner at night. I just maybe don't want to have it for lunch or, you know, certain things like that, that I think kind of open up a few options for them if they're willing to explore it and kind of ultimately get to that point where they found kind of like an individual path that's going to work for them long-term.
1: Yeah. Well, I do more health coaching now. I became a nutritional therapy practitioner over the years and a FDN practitioner. So I can order functional lab testing and then Mm -hmm. more investigate what's going on with someone with their external and internal stressors. So that's what I do more so than writing people's schedule. So I'm getting the athletes that are struggling getting results by doing all the so-called right things, but they can't figure out why their performance is a struggle or they're not you know able to lose weight or work on why they're not recovering but it is a carnivore it's a strict food elimination diet because if you end up removing all those plant toxins yeah it's says heal heal, and then reintroduce those foods but it's going back to that four-day rotation diet or you know a hormetic stress is having a plant just mm-hmm. as a workout that's anaerobic or you know, a sauna or cold therapy is just another type of stressor, but you just do it once in a while. But if you did that every day, that becomes a chronic stressor. So we could look at it from that lens that, okay, it is a toxin, but what if I just have it once a week, once I've helped heal my heal and seal my gut with proper elimination diet and protocol to heal, repair the gut issues, but because it's always why, why, why is that not working? Why don't you do well with that vegetable? What else is going on that's causing those symptoms and look at the whole picture and put the missing pieces of the puzzle together. So that's why I think carnivore works for a lot of people because it's looking at, okay, you've got, you've got something broken and it's causing this metabolic chaos. But um, anyways, I wanted to go into the question kind of with this topic is on our list is you and Dan Plews were talking about this recently, nutritional ketosis for athletes. Cause we get this all the time. Stephanie and I have this keto endurance Facebook group page that uh, she started years ago and everyone's always, Oh, I, I don't want to get out of nutritional ketosis on a bike ride mm-hmm. or my run. I want to test if I'm still in ketosis. And I was like, isn't your goal for performance to burn fat for endurance athletes. And being able to use carbs if I'm racing or sprinting at the finish line or finishing with some intervals, but do we need to be in nutritional ketosis all the time is a big question.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting one. And I suspect there's maybe like some range targets that are going to differ from a lifestyle variance uh, just based on what I've seen. But ultimately I don't know that that's even important because it's not clear to me that like some Millimole of blood ketones is going to be, is going to accurately suggest whether you're fat adapted or not. And it sort of becomes this question of like, first of all, what is fat adaptation? And I think it's like, it's less of a target and more of a spectrum of how fat adapted do you need to be based on your goals and your lifestyle. So, like, yeah, if you're going to go and run 24 hours and taken zero carbohydrates, you probably need to be quite fat adapted to be able to make that a comfortable experience. But if you're going to do a 24 hour race and not go on a zero carb diet, the, the next, the question really is how much can you expect to be able to take in to defend liver and muscle glycogen during that, that, that race? And From there, how fat adapted do you need to know, need knowing you can actually use that tool. So what I like to share with people sometimes is like, I've had my fat oxidation tests done in a lab along with blood ketone monitoring. And I've had situations where it's like, I test like relatively low level of ketones, like 0.4 to 0.7 millimoles. And then I get on that metabolic cart and I'm above 1.4 grams, I'm sorry, 1.5 grams per minute from a fat ox- peak fat oxidation rate. And it's not clear to me that it would be any benefit for me to improve my fat oxidation rates beyond that because the the small amount of fueling I'm going to need to do to defend that in like, say, a, a or an ultra marathon, like I described before, is going to be low enough where I'm not too worried about having a digestive issue personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if that was somebody else and we found out, oh, it turns out on race day, their fueling capacity is half of what I can do they may need to be a little more fat adapted given assuming they're targeting the same intensity. And that's where I think it gets really a little more interesting is when you look at these things as like, where do I need to be versus where is like this, like this peak spot of like, I'm as fat adapted as I can possibly get. Cause there's trade-offs with that. Like as you upregulate your, your fat oxidation rates, that's likely going to come at the expense of to some degree, your your carbohydrate utilization, so somebody who is like let's say really really high like up into maybe the two grams per uh their two 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 grams of fat per minute in their their fat oxidation rates you know they may they may not have the they're they the, if they if you give someone like that a like an oral glucose test they would probably take a nap immediately after, so then I'm just always curious about like how much how much of a trade-off are you looking to get in order to have those like off the chart millimoles? And what does that even mean from a performance standpoint? I understand it if it's a therapeutic thing where it's like, okay, this person has epileptic seizures and therefore needs to be in a a type or a type one diabetic. Yeah. Yeah. Using, using a, a, like a ketogenic diet to manage stuff like that. Then I think, yeah, there's, there's a whole nother conversation to be had there, but from a performance standpoint, like, I mean, I've tested blood ketones over the course of training plans where like, you know, there's days where I'm doing like a pretty, pretty big, or there's weeks where I'm doing a pretty big variety of different training and my carbohydrates are kind of reflecting what we described in the past, where I'm targeting them around some of those higher intensity, moderate intensity stuff. And, you know, there are days where I'm testing blood ketones, I'm t- two millimoles, there's days I'm 0.5 and it's, there's no clear indication to me whether I'm performing better or worse due to that. So ultimately like getting a fat oxidation test is probably going to give you some real direct details as to where you're at and maybe where you'd want to make some changes. Um, and maybe highlight for somebody like why they maybe don't need to necessarily chase a specific ketone number.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. It's that chasing the ketones. I think and forgetting the main purpose as an athlete is to be more metabolically efficient at burning fat at higher rates. So you're higher, heart rate. So doing the metabolic testing, as I bought Pinoy metabolic testing kit this spring and trying to launch this in North San Diego for athletes to figure out, okay, what are those numbers for you? So, you know, when you test, are you looking at, we use in Pinoy five zones and your zone two that we always talk about for endurance training would be your bottom of zone two is your, um, max fat burn. And then your top of zone two would be your metabolic crossover point where carb usage goes up and the fat goes down. So to have is that what you test your peak fat burning heart rate and where you're burning the most fat oxidizing, most fat, and then your, where your threshold crossover point is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like when the tests that I've done that I really like are ones that they would, they would essentially pin where your aerobic threshold is your lactate threshold is and your VO two max. And then they pair that with your your uh your ratios of fasted carbohydrates at those intensities because that's yeah. information that I think you can use. So when I'm planning out like my race day fueling, I'm basing it on that. So it's like if I eat this way and like my example before, I'm at 1.56 grams per minute and my peak peak fat oxidation rate, that's an interesting data point for me. But what's even more interesting to me for the race itself is what intensity am I planning on racing and where does it fall on that spectrum from rest up to VO2 max or beyond. Mm-hmm. And where I'm going to be on that spectrum is going. I'm I'm interested there as to like, what is that kind of carbohydrate to fat oxidation range for me there, because that's going to be more of a clear individual indication as to what I need to target on race day from a fueling standpoint versus just kind of throwing caution to the wind, so to speak, and targeting this like range of uh, uh, carbohydrate intake that's, that's recommended or that, you know, or pushing the upper limits. Cause I think the funny thing about race fueling to me is like when I got in, I didn't, I started doing low carb in 2011. So I'm coming up on like 12 years. So I'm not quite as seasoned as you Debbie, but I, I've been You're doing it as for old a while. As I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it, it was like, at that point people were, I, th- I mean, they were pushing the limits of what we knew for race day fueling, but not from what I could tell beyond what we've seen in the research of like you know, you kind of have that situation where a lot of these sports products are formulated to be a two to one ratio of like maltodextrin to fructose, because you know that like the clearance for maltodextrin is going to be like 60 grams, fructose closer to 30 grams. So if you really want to start to really stress your digestion and try to get as much in as you can, that 90 gram number became kind of popular for a while. And now we're seeing people push well past that and try that. And I see that as like, sort of like the opposite end of, What like i'm doing where it's like keep some carbohydrates around but kind of personalize it based on what your fat oxidation rates are showing versus chasing some some random number and it's like that's equally unstudied as far as i can tell at this point so it's interesting to see the dialogue around it and like what's working for people or not working for people
1: well i think that's why it's great to do metabolic efficiency tests if you can if you're really you know wanting to do well in your races and figure out, have a more of a specific personalized program when you're training. And then on race days, and you can kind of have obviously it's guessing a little bit because it's not exact conditions and on a treadmill in a, a lab compared to outside on the trails, but just figure out kind of ballpark figure where you should start at. And then it, you know, of course, correct as needed. But I think a lot of people are just guessing and we always say test and not guess yeah. where you are and you don't know what you don't know. So if you're just kind of thinking, because I think a lot of people train in that black hole training, we say the gray zone, that they're not in that fat burning heart rate range. And they're doing too much kind of slightly more anaerobic and they're not creating that bigger base. And then where they're doing interval training and Daniel Crumback and I are actually podcasting Monday, he did our um, metabolic expert certification course. They did for Pinoe, but he, doing zone five or zone four, if you're doing one minutes to three minute sprints in zone four or zone five would be example, 10 to 30 second sprints, but you have to come all the way down to zone one, stay there a certain time until you go up back up to say zone five. And you're actually in zone five for 30 seconds. Most people don't do their interval training, right? So I think mm-hmm. testing and figure out what those numbers are for you. And also we can identify what, how you're training now, where you're, limiters are or i like to say areas of opportunity so you can figure out a more personalized program here's where you want to be and here's how we can get you there by based on these clues we just collected doing testing and figure mm-hmm. out a plan based on that looking at the whole picture
0: do, do you do any like alternative like field testing with your clients if they are just not able or willing to go in and get like some of that data that's out there in terms of like a metabolic cart to just test to whether they're like because I mean, the question is like, if I'm like, when I talk about fat adapted enough, the next question is always, well, what is that? And how do I know? Yeah. And obviously like getting on a metabolic car can be a little, make that a little clearer picture as to whether you want to get more fat adapted or not based on your own needs. But if that's not available, how do we kind of get close enough in the field to at least get a starting point to work from is sometimes the question I'll get. Do you have anything that you like to do with your clients to kind of see like, oh, this person's fat oxidation is probably fine. We don't really need to necessarily pull the lever much harder versus this person's weakness is their, their body's ability to use fat at you know even lower intensities. Therefore, we should start pulling some levers to improve their fat oxidation rates.
1: So I'll sound really old, but this is where I go back to Phil Mapitone because <laughs> he's taught me all this. And then Sally Edwards back in, gosh, this is really a long time ago, 1995, when I first started learning from her heart zone training and we would do a heart rate test. So you just go, okay, 110, how do you feel? RPE scale one to 10, 120, 130, and do it that way was a test we used to do on a bike. You could do treadmill, so a perceived exertion and kind of guesstimate where that, you know, Green Zone, comfortable talk test, old school way, mm-hmm. and the Mappitone always taught us. And I was on Mark Allen Elite Triathlon Team for a long time, and we did Mappitone method, which is now called Max Aerobic Function Heart Rate is 180 minus your age, plus or minus five if you've been sick or in shape. You know, you do a little calculation. You look at Mappitone method and and that, or I guess Max, the math method, mm-hmm. and figure out the numbers there. And when I used to do new leaf testing 2005 until uh, lifetime fitness bought the company and took the equipment away 2012 about. I used to always compare the test that I was doing on the VO two max test with the Maffetone formula. And a lot of times it was right where their max fat burning was, was their math number. So if you can't get a real test, you can do the one 80 minus your age, which is, you know, walking for some people. So they don't want to do that, but Saves, you know, you're 50 years old. You do 180 minus 50. We want to stay at say 130 for the majority of your training, and then you can do a monthly test to see if you're improving or not. So ideally, like the old story would be Matt, Mark Allen would get, you know, so much faster. So every month you do that test, your eight minute mile to 7:30 pace to so seven minute at that same heart rate, so you get faster. And then when you don't get any improve anymore, then you add in the speed work. Mm-hmm. So that's how we used to train back in the day before testing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think, I mean, I, I enjoy targeting things in a similar way where I I don't necessarily focus on it as maximum function. And I just say it's aerobic threshold is what I'm looking at here. Cause it's yeah. like that crossover same. point. Yeah. Same thing basically. And I mean, I'll call that like a base run and once my base Mm -hmm. run sort of plateaus for a while and it's not really an option to add more volume, then yeah, I'm dropping in some speed work to kind of pull that up. And then I'll, I'm just in a weird sport where base or aerobic threshold tends to be race intensity when you start doing a hundred miles. (laughs) (laughs) So then I'll usually go back to it after some speed work development and really focus on race specific stuff. But I find it interesting. uh, I think the, I think the approach is sound. Do you struggle with clients sometimes in terms of having that age adjusted rate be accurate? I think there are people out there who they actually do just need to, to, to accept the fact they're going to have to go kind of painfully slow for a while and let that sink in. But I do have clients who also like we sort of stress tested a little bit and they're just maybe like not quite accurate with that, that age adjustment. And then we can afford to let them get a little more liberal with their, their heart rate on those, those uh, kind of up to your aerobic threshold type runs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just have a client. I just did my Pinoy metabolic test on her and she was, before I had the equipment to test her, we were looking her heart rate was always like one sixties all the time and one mm-hmm. fifties and she's in her late fifties. And it was interesting to test her that her, max fat burning ranges were up when, you know, up to 160. So she's just ran higher. So I think some people run higher. I remember when I used to test years ago, I had someone that was like 120 heart rate was where they got anaerobic and they were super fast. So it just depends, I guess, genetics more so and just where they are. So you kind of can guess, but then yeah, everyone's unique individual. And then I look at what medications they're on and what their stressors are, because there's so many things that will increase your heart rate and look at your resting heart rate and heart rate variability metrics and track that kind Mm -hmm. of data.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know if it's just like something unique to the the individuals who will come to me or if it's more on average, but I'll always get a few that are like that where they'll have been doing a maximum aerobic function style of training and they're just really frustrated. It's like, this feels so easy. I'm walking. And I'm like, well, let's stress test this a little bit. Go out and dial up that pace that you've been targeting that you're saying is really easy. And then just gradually increase it and just gauge whether you'd be able to carry a conversation. Yeah, or exactly. Maybe, I was just
1: going to say, yeah, talk whole whole time. Or, or nasal
0: breathe. <laughs> like if you get to a point where like you're breathing in your nose and out your mouth and you're going 10, 15 beats faster than that heart rate, we can be pretty safe in assuming that like you have a little more cushion And yeah, sometimes those, you get those people who are their aerobic thresholds, just a little bit of higher heart rate. And they tend to be the ones who I think struggle the most with being really strict with heart heart rate, adjusted age type metrics.
1: Well, that's where I think it's great to run by yourself. And then when you have friends to run with, because I find that when you're running with people, everyone, maybe, uh, unknowingly push the pace a little bit, be competitive, that you're kind of more anaerobic the entire time, but if you're running with running partners, maybe they're a little bit slower than you, maybe they're a good partner so you can slow down and be able to talk the whole time. So if you could just chit chat the whole time Mm -hmm. on the run, you're not, you you know, halfing and puffing that you can have a comfortable conversation. That's probably a good estimate where a good training Mm -hmm. pace would be. But
0: Yeah. I've had a couple of clients where I've done this for, where it's like they're, they want to do, they're going to do like a call, check-in call or a consultation. And this is the specific topics like, let's do your call on your next run
1: <laughs> that's uh, a smart idea yeah, just yeah. everyone wears those ear pods now when they run listen to something why don't they just listen are they talking you listen yeah. to them
0: Does ask some questions <laughs> as soon as they're not getting through a sentence then it's like okay slow down slow down what's your heart rate
1: yeah what's your hurry what's your pace track put that on your notes so so fun, but I know we're out of time, but anything else we didn't, I think we got all of our stuff on the list, testing yeah. your max fat oxidation rate, carnivore females versus males. We talked a little bit about, I'll just finish with that. I, Cause I've been just di- watching a video. I'm doing that course of Stacey Sims, but just women, if they're struggling with the long endurance stuff, it's so fascinating to me to dive into this research for females like before, after menopause, which is funny because menopause is like one day of your life that you're officially not having your cycle for years. It's kind mm-hmm. of weird thing, but it's uh, when your hormones are low as a female, that you have to uh, make up for that loss of hormones and change how we train instead of the high volume. And it's really, I need to get Stacy on my podcast to say, okay, what if you're an endurance athlete? How should you train? If yeah, she said, you know, if you do a lot of zone two, you might be Storing more fat because it's raising your cortisol, and your body already knows how to go long. So, you don't need as much long as a female. We're naturally able to do well in endurance. But now, in this second half of your life, we may adjust how we train, doing a little bit more shorter, long distance stuff, and add more sprints to the finish, add more heavy weights that are three to six repetitions, three to five sets and then doing some plyometrics and stuff. So it's, it's really, I keep saying on my side of my world that don't blame the aging process, that this is what happens as I get older. I'm going to get fat, slow and, and out of shape that it's going to be embrace aging process, adjust how you fuel. adjust how you train because of females. We don't have those hormones as high as we used to, but instead of not having those hormones, this is how we can make up for that loss and prioritizing the protein and the, the lifting. So I think it's you know, we got to look at if you're not getting the results that you want, I say what's the definition of insanity doing the yeah. same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So well let's stop, pause, and reset your program and look at it from a different lens. So, awesome. Yeah.
0: I think that I think we covered some fun topics and I think that's a great spot to uh, to end on, but it's been great chatting, Debbie. I think it's something we should maybe do again in the future when we get another list of things to opine about.
1: Yeah. Well, everyone can send in their questions. I know it's just, it's a hard area out there. That's why I wanted to collaborate because I think there's so much, cause I'm hearing everyone that, as I said, the carnivore world, that's more the power lifters and doing their strength training, but you're the ultra endurance, I'm endurance and looking at it from the aging athlete too. And the female athlete, I think it's, we have to take all that information and let's twist it a little bit for us in our community.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right on. Well, thanks a bunch, Debbie.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning into this episode
1: of the human performance outliers podcast with Zach Bitter.